Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, and welcome back to the podcast. This is John and Joe coming at you from the treehouse on the third floor in Denver, Colorado. Today, we are talking about the Mass. John, have you been to Mass before? What is the Mass? Have you been to Mass? You've been to Mass, haven't you? Yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while, Joe. The Lord yeah. be with you, John. Yeah, yeah. And with your spirit, right? <laughs> well, you oh! know what? What are you, Anglican, John? <laughs> Listen, all last, all last semester, <clears throat> Mike, uh, Deacon Mike, now Father Mike, would not tell me the topics. So the fact that you told me the topic and I could anticipate <laughs> that and not sound like an idiot was perfect. Oh, so. man. Well, lift up your hearts, John. No, thank you. Oh, I don't know that one. Oh, uh, come on. This is the same. We lift them up. No, how does the ah, – right. We lift them up to the Lord. Yeah, but – Let us give thanks to the Lord the our God. the topic today is – We're going to talk about the new translation, John. The new translation. Well, I was trying to think of what is the new translation going to be. Oh, well, I, was, I, wasn't, I wasn't testing you. I oh, was I just, thought you were – I was just being fun. All right. All right. <laughs> the uh, is it just me or does it feel like fall? Like it just happened over the weekend. It's like summer is over and it's fall. I woke up freezing this morning in my house because I was like, "No, you're not with me." Well, I mean, it's always cold in the morning. Even in the summer, though, it's freezing in the mornings. In That's Denver. true. That's, That's just kind of how Denver is. It's just how Denver is. It could snow like next week. That's very true. possible. I love it though, man. Last year, I think we had a snowstorm in October. I was like two feet, and we had the best pancake breakfast in the seminary. I've had. <laughs> That's all I remember, playing Jack Johnson no. and making banana pancakes. Oh, That's what yeah, we were yeah, doing. okay. I was like, all right. Nice, dude. All right, back to the translation. All right. So as many of you know, new translation of the Mass is going to be – was just approved by the Holy See. Okay. Um, it's going to be implemented on fall, fall advent of 2011, right? So it's about a year from now. Well, this is, this is huge. I mean, this is totally going to change every single Catholic in America's experience of going to Mass. I mean – because right when I, I mean, if I didn't tell you the topic, I would have said, Lord be with you. And you would have said. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. It is right to give, let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Uh, I only think in Spanish. It's justo y necesario. <laughs> actually, that's actually close to the new translation. Really? Yeah, it is. Um, but the reason I say that is because so many times with these responses, we're just kind of on autopilot. Like somebody says, Lord be with you. And also with you. That's just kind of how our experience of mass is. And it's really going to rock our experience when we go to mass and all of a sudden, Everything's different. I mean, literally every single part of the Mass has been retranslated. And this isn't just the prayers that we pray and the responses. It's the, you know, the holy, 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 the Gloria, the, even the priest prayers that he's praying, the Eucharistic prayer. Um, Speaking of which, I'm going to be a disaster because <laughs> right, right now, you're going to You're going to be going through this. This year I'm learning the Mass, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to be ordained in May, a priest. And I'm uh, going through the whole Mass, learning everything. I'm finally going to get it down. And then six months into my priesthood, bam, it's going to change. And I'm going to have to relearn everything again. So I was like, thanks a lot, Vatican. (laughs) Six months earlier. That's all I'm asking for. It's so exciting, though. It's so cool. Um, And I'm going to talk about why. Why it's cool. And really just what happened. So what's this new translation about? Tell me why they're making a new translation in the first place. Exactly. And this is my question. Like, where did this come from? So what's actually changing? So we say new translation. This isn't a new the translation we have of the Mass is translated from the Latin, the Roman Rom- – what is it, the Missal Romano or yep. something? Um, the Roman Missal in Latin that was released after Vatican II, I think in 1969 or something like that. Um, and we had a translation right away. Um, so the translation – the Roman Missal hasn't changed. The Latin is the same. What we're getting is a new translation of the Latin. Of the Latin. Of the Latin okay. text. So the Mass really isn't changing. 
if we go if we go to Rome now and hear Mass in Latin, and we go to Rome after the new translation is implemented in America, it's going to be the same exact Mass. In and Latin. I guess for important for people to know, this is not the, the Mass is not changing. Mm-hmm. Like after Vatican II, there were some huge changes in the liturgy, right, but was, this is nothing like that. This is right. this is simply we had a translation. And we have found this translation to be insufficient in a lot right. of ways, and have a line, there's a lot of things missing. Right. And so this is this is an effort of the last ten years, really, to uh, perfect this and to make this better, uh, so that the American Church isn't deprived of some of the richness uh, right. that's in the Latin liturgy. And when I was studying Latin, I had the opportunity to go through the Missal in the Latin, and we pointed out all the different stuff. And I don't know if you did that as well, but it was like. It was really interesting. I was like, "Whoa, we really are missing a lot." Oh, um, it's it's totally wild. And when you, the first time I heard this, and I got offline, got the new translation, kind of side by side with the old one. Right. It was almost like, where did they, where did they get this stuff? I mean, like the Gloria, especially like syntax is different. The word, the phrases are different. It's almost like, how was this translated from this text and this translated from the same text? Because these two texts are so, so different, so different in some yeah. ways. And so we're going to talk about what happened. So what did happen? Um. So one thing to understand here is the history of how this process worked after Vatican II. Um, after Vatican II, uh, what is it, Sacrosanctum Concilium? Very good. Yeah. was uh, one of the documents. Uh, if you're uh, a classical Latin, it would be Concilium. <laughs> concilium, <laughs> which I'm not. <laughs> Doesn't so, that sound ridiculous? I know. Like Kikoro. Kikoro. Go ahead. Um, but in that document, one of the things the council allowed was for the use of the vernacular and invited the use of the vernacular. Right. And this was a huge thing because – you know, as long as definitely since Trent and before then, the Latin Church had been strictly in Latin. Right. Other rites had gone to the vernacular, but the Latin Church was strictly the vernacular or the Latin Latin uh, language. So, the fact that this opened the vernacular got a lot of people really excited. The problem with that was we hadn't had there wasn't anybody uh, in the Latin Church like we had never put the Latin into the vernacular right. for official use. I mean, yeah. we have our Roman Missal with Latin on one page, and my mom, who grew up in the church before Vatican II, remember, you know, her Latin part of the Missal and the right part was English, and she could kind of follow along. So, but one of the big things of the council was to for, was what full active participation, right. full, conscious, conscious full active participation in the council. And one of the things John Paul II was really big at that doesn't just mean like everybody has their own ministry and everybody is like you know. Eucharistic ministers now, like the ladies all involved. What that means primarily is that full conscious active participation means listening and being able to understand. And while the priest is praying, to be praying with him and to be bringing your offering, your sacrifice of your life to the Mass as the priest brings his offering and sacrifice. And the primary way we can do that, and the reason that they invited the vernacular is because was so we could listen, and we could understand, and we could participate consciously exactly. in our hearts, not necessarily doing anything different. I mean, and that's, and that's good. To, the responses kind of cultivate that, and the use of singing and things like that, it, it, it uh, cultivates um, an involvement in the Mass and in the prayers. But the primary way we're going to do that, and I participate in that, is by listening and praying the Mass. You know what's interesting is that the Latin word, when we say full, active, and conscious participation, active it, it's actuoso. So it's like it, it really means actual, like full actual conscious participation in the Mass. When we think of active, it's like, all right, everybody get up there and start doing things. You know, here, you hold this, you hold this, you do this. Here, Jimmy, take the incensor. Exactly, you know? yeah. But yeah. It's, it's just an actual participation, which means receptive, right, as the bride, not as the bridegroom, which is the priest and the person of Christ. Beautiful. That's just thought awesome. I'd throw that in there. Right on. So the big difference, there's something about translation uh, we need to understand. Uh, I love Dr. Frank, one of the uh, the Greek teacher. I'm having her right now for Greek at the seminary. And she had this quote. She said it was a quote from someone else, but she, 
she was talking about the importance of translation and why translation, having a good translation is so important and right. knowing the original language, knowing why, we, why do we want to learn Greek in this class. And she said, you know, somebody said, you know, reading the New Testament in a language other than Greek is like kissing one's wife through a handkerchief. <laughs> and she says that in her South African voice that I can't imitate. Well, and Tim Gray, our scripture professor here, says all – Translation is interpretation. Exactly. And that she would say the same thing. That, yeah. And the reason why is this. When you read every single language, um, the words in a language have more than one meaning. There's layers of meaning to a word. Um, and when you translate to another language, a target language, that's, just, that's the official, that's kind of right. how they, the linguists use it. The target language might not have a word. It might have the word that mirrors one meaning of the original language's word, but it might not have a word that mirrors all the meanings of it. And if you can think of a word, like what's a – give me an example of a word in another language that has a lot of – like a shamar or something. Shamar, okay. What does shamar mean? Uh, to guard or protect. In what language is that? Hebrew. That's in Hebrew. So yeah. how does – when we read shamar in the scriptures in Genesis 2, I think it is, right. what, how is it translated usually? Um, to keep. Yeah, like so Adam was put in the garden to shamar, to till and to keep the garden, right? right. But shamar, there's a richer meaning of shamar. Oh, shamar yeah. just doesn't mean till or keep. It means to guard, to protect, right. Right. even to lay one's life down for this thing, to fight for this. Exactly. Um, so there's, there's a meaning there that we don't really get in till and keep. But shamar, there's a fuller meaning that we might not have a word that mirrors that completely. Absolutely. You, you follow my drift? Absolutely. So this is why a translation is so important, to kind of find words that – uh, can mirror those other words in the layers of meaning. And we're never going to be able to do that perfectly, but right. I'm just trying to get out what translation does. We're right. getting an interpretation, the translator's interpretation of the original text. So when in 1969, um, when Rome approved the vernacular and the new missile came out and they said, we need a translation for this, it was kind of a quick process. It only took about a month long. Can you imagine that? Are you kidding me? I'm not kidding you. From the time they had the, th- the things formed to do it, been the time they gave Rome the translation said, here's what we got. Rome had two weeks to approve it. Oh, my gosh. And so they didn't read through the whole thing, they but overall they looked at it. And what they did, they didn't have their own translators in the church. They really con- kind of contracted out. There's a group called ISIL. Yeah. ISIL means the International Commission on English and the Liturgy. Um, and 10 different English-speaking countries contracted out to ISIL to translate the liturgy. So they did that, um, gave it to Rome two weeks. They said, you know, it looks fine to us. You guys are professionals. This is This is good translated it um the problem with it was this though there was um there's two forms of when you translate things from scripture um this is mostly in scriptural translations there's something called dynamic equivalence Mm. and formal equivalence and they're kind of juxtaposed to one another um and i'll kind of spell out what this means dynamic equivalence is this it's um it attempts more to um to convey the thought expressed in the source text um at the expense of a literal translation so you're kind of just trying to translate the general meaning of something than to try to get like a literal word-for-word translation. An example of this in our liturgy would be, you know, the Lord be with you and also with you. The Latin says... Et cum spiritu. <laughs> oh, everything's in Spanish. I'm losing my et, Latin. It's a, et cum spiritu tuo. There you go. So and with your spirit literally translated. Yeah. But the dynamic equivalent translation of that, you're not trying to translate literal and with your spirit. You're trying to translate the general idea. And so instead of and with your spirit literally, we get... And also with you. And you know, that's the kind of general thing that they're trying to say. Dynamic equivalence. <clears throat> and that's not a bad thing. This is just a way of translating. Huh, interesting. But at the time of the council and at the time when the, they were trying to get a vernacular, this wasn't super on the radar of what this could do to the liturgy. And so they said dynamic equivalence is kind of the – that's kind of the in vogue type of translation for these sort of things. So we're going to go with this. 
Um, I was talking to Sister Estemary, one of the liturgists uh, at the seminary, and she was saying how Cardinal Meyer, who was in the Vatican at this time, involved in the translations. In 85, he was reading the, in, the American liturgy with some other things, and he turns to Sister Estemary and says, what is this English? He's, he was so amazed at how much the English lost. It didn't yeah. even line up with the Latin in a yeah. lot of ways. I mean, there, the general ideas were translated, but there, there was so much being missed in the literal in the literal translation that wasn't there. It was right. just getting these thoughts across, right. you know. Um, it was really, it just kind of stood out to him that, wow. And he, he, he would like, was sad and grieved over it because in his mind, the American church was losing so much of the richness of the Latin text right. and so much of the theology behind it. And that's where it really gets in trouble because you know, every translation you have an interpretation. But especially with dynamic equivalence, you interpret a whole thought is you're not just interpreting words where someone can kind of piece and make and, and kind of get the richer meanings out of it. You're really choosing one interpretation right. and just putting that first. So right. the translator has a lot more – I know there's the right word – a lot more power right. in, in conveying what the text is. So if we're not going to use dynamic equivalence for this translation – which I'm guessing yes, is not the case from what I've seen of What are we using? So this is formal equivalence. Formal equivalence. Formal equivalence is kind of the opposite. Formal equivalence attempts to render the text word for word as much as possible, sometimes at the expense of a readability or an understanding completely um, if you don't already have some uh, – it's, it's not just going to – the meanings might not jump out at you. But for the most part, it's going to be a literal translation, and we'll be able to understand it. It's okay. not like most people are simpletons. you know. Right. We're going to be able to understand formal equivalence. But what it preserves is the richness of the text, and right. so it's it's really a cool thing. Um, and there's and there's a lot of things it, there's a lot of things that have been left out that are going to be returning. That people who grew up before Vatican II and had some familiarity with the Latin text and the English translation of that are going to kind of be like oh, almost like an old friend. Like, yeah. oh yeah, I remember oh, this part of the mass. It's funny. I was down in San Antonio at my brother's. My brother goes to a Catholic Latin rite. Anglican use parish, uh, St. Um, I think Our Lady of the Atonement it's called in okay. San Antonio. Awesome parish. I loved it when I was down there. But they ha- they used the old Latin liturgy with some modifications. So it's, But it's been accepted by John Paul II, I think, in like the early 90s or late 80s. They said, you know, you can you can do this. Um, but it's it's a lot of the old Latin liturgy right. or Anglican liturgy. I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, but the Anglican translation is so much more faithful. A for- it's more of a, a formal equivalent um, translation principle. Uh, from the Latin, so you know they say "end with your spirit." Right, after Lord. So you hear the whole thing, like, and so many of the prayers are different, but they're more faithful actually to the Latin text than a lot of our translations in the American Latin Rite Church was to the original Latin. That's text. crazy. It's, now, here's a question for you. Yeah, sorry to cut you off. Now you're the, cool. Uh, um, you're a musician. I am, and uh, you come from a long uh, line of musicians. I don't know if that's true, but we'll uh, go with it. long line of leavers is David's <laughs> called. <laughs> no, the the uh, and all the music is gonna really have to change all the mass parts at least right because everything is um you know if you think of like christ has died christ has risen christ will come again the memorial acclamation which is not from the latin crazy gone christ has died christ has risen christ will come again that's they it got axed that so was i'm not gonna hear marty hogan anymore no more marty hogan at least not in that way um Unless yeah marty gets that's, to that's one of the crazy things christ has died christ has risen that's one of the things that's going to cut out completely because the latin actually doesn't have anything like that um, that was a U.S. adaptation around the time. I don't know the full story about how that happened. It actually, for all this stuff, too, if anybody wants to learn more, go to the USCCB's website. They have a ton of information on this. Um, and you can you can go down the top bar. They have a new translation bar. And you can kind of look through all this stuff and, and kind of read about it yourself if you want to learn more. Um, but other things, too, like uh, 
you know, dying you destroyed our death, rising you restore our life, Lord Jesus come in glory. There's no really Latin equivalent to that. Um, the one we're going to say is we proclaim your death, O Lord, and profess your resurrection until you come again. Huh. But, I mean, there's, it's crazy how many things are changing. And so we're going to see it all over the place in the Mass. But the thing I'm most – well, there's two things I'm most excited about for this. One is that for the people praying the Mass, it will be a chance to really engage the, well, the prayers again that we're praying. Right, right, and right. really when you relearn something, it's almost like you have to put some energy into really enter into the prayer again. It's going to – the autopilot like uh, – will be disa- disabled at least for until we really learn this well. Like, yeah. we, we won't That's, be able to be an autopilot anymore because it's like my autopilot doesn't have these words in my mind, so I have to relearn these. You have least. to stop and think through everything you're saying. Exactly. So That's talk about great. active participation. Yeah. You're going to have to be active if you want to even respond. That's great. That's awesome. The second thing that's really cool is that for priests – this is going to be a way for them to re-fall in love with the Mass and to relearn how to pray the Mass, especially over the last 40 years where formation was very different in so many different seminaries. Um, and priests were, you know, some priests didn't have the greatest formation. Right. This is a chance for so many priests to, and this is how, um, what's that, the uh, Midwest Theological Forum, I right. think, is in charge Chicago. of implementing this in yeah. Chicago. They're, over the next year, I mean, this is happening Advent 2011, so they have a year to implement this. Uh, they have all this, all these um, resources and DVDs to teach priests how to pray this mass. So I'm excited for our priest friends and so many of our fathers in the church who are going to be engaging this text in a new way as well. Exactly, which is just so cool. Um, I'm super pumped. And then there's just a lot of stuff that we miss. Sister Esmeralda told me something awesome the other day. Um, you might have remembered this from your liturgy class, but she said she was talking about the exultant Easter. What's the exultant, John? The exalted is the kind of Easter proclamation. Uh, before the readings and the lights come on, and it's kind yeah, of right the before the end gospel, the and it's like yeah, it's the end yeah. of the triduum, it's the beginning of the Easter celebration, right. and a deacon or a priest gets up there and chants this beautiful hymn. The exultant is actually from like the eighth century, it came out of monasteries and was kind of written over time. Right. Um, but one of the things in the exultant, there's a reference in the exultant to I don't know exactly the literal what it is, but it's a reference to bees. And how <laughs> it sounds crazy, but and how the whole reference is about how bees um, procreate and how from bees comes wax, and the wax is referring to the Easter candle. Candle, um, but there's there's a process of I don't even know this. Sister Esmeralda had to explain this. I, for, I forget the word. It sounds so crazy, but how a, a, a queen bee is never inseminated. A right. queen bee. Um, I forget what the process is, but like, put something out there and <laughs> whatever it gets out there gets inseminated. But there's there's a preservation of the queen bee's virginity, okay. I guess you could say in a lot of ways. So it's nah, a reference. Where are you going here? Uh, okay. Well, it's a reference to Our Lady and how <laughs> okay. Our Lady, you know, right. gives forth this fruit without by preserving uh, her in the in the exactly and how. Exactly. But the divine comes, and from that you can get something like almost supernatural, like wax and a candle. Basically, it's a reference to Our Lady and doing honor to her and the incarnation. Anyway, the Latin had this, and this has been the exalted, and people over the last thousand years in the Roman Catholic Church have been praying this, and like, oh yeah, reference to bees and the exultant, you know? Right. This is totally like foreign to us, you know? We're yeah. like, what is this about? You know why? Because when they translated the Mass uh, with the first translation, dynamic equivalence, they got to this part, and they're like, this is where the interpretation comes in, right. and pe- too much power given to the translator. They just said, we don't think people will get what this is about. So right. they just scrapped it. Just done. It's just it's just gone. They just yeah. there was no translation at all. They just kind of t- ripped that part out of right. the exultant. And it's like, I mean, even if we don't understand it completely, you're depriving a whole continent, you know, really, yeah. who praises mass to from from just some of the richness of and these little things that the church has known for a thousand years. And people, 
you learn it because it's part of your faith. Yeah. Instead of just like, well, we have to kind of spoon feed them little things of what they can understand. We don't want to kind of ask too much of the people. So it's just a cool thing, but that's going to be making it back in the new translation. So yeah. watch out for it next hey, year. Man. When you're at the Easter Vigil, people, Let's listen watch. for the bees. Now listen you, for the bees. <laughs> a year from this Easter, I'll be watching out and hopefully not screwing up John will up be too chanting much. it probably. Hopefully not screwing up too much. Uh, Joe, thanks, man. I learned a lot. You you have uh, showed your quality here in your first <laughs> yeah, right. uh, first one. The uh, Mike and I were failed at researching last semester, and this is a well thought out, well presented. So thanks, dude. Wow, uh, it'll be fun. Questions, comments, concerns, fears, anxieties, uh, Catholic stuff podcast at, at gmail dot com on Facebook, and I think that's about it. That's it. All right. Have All a right, good uh, Have a good week. Okay. Bye bye.